I was with a pastor this week, and he told me the story about a young man who was in his ministry. He and his wife had come to the church for counseling because he uh, was tormented with grief and shame in his heart over desires and longings that he had in the sexual area. He, uh, he and his wife counseled for a while. The pastors tried to help them through these things, tried to help them understand the provision that God had even made in their own marriage and tried to help the, the man understand the wholesomeness uh, of those desires in the proper context. And yet he couldn't get over a sense of filth and shame and uh, disgust of what he, he felt like was wrong in his own heart. So days turned into weeks and weeks turned into eventually months of counseling. And this man constantly tormented all the time over his sin, day after day causing misery and discontentment in his own home and obviously disruption in his own marriage. One day he walks into a sporting goods store, makes his way around the store and finds his way to the counter where they sell the weaponry. He asked to look at a pellet gun and they gave it to him. He put it to his right eye and shot it out. The family uh, was met at the hospital by the pastors. They tried to minister to him and serve him. Certainly during his time of pain and loss and, and, uh, and grief as he was recovering in the hospital minister to his wife, bring some order to the confusion. And, and then beyond that, to continue to, to impress upon him the sufficiency of Christ's provision through the cross and, and the work that the Holy Spirit could do in his own heart. He got out of the hospital and continued in counseling, but never really finding any sort of relief as he went on in his shame and, and uh, discontent until... He made his way back to the same store, took his other eye. Something tragically is wrong, we know, in a situation like that, right? Such a sad, sad story of something gone terribly awry. Especially when a man has been granted the grace of marriage and yet somehow feels that in his own heart, He has desires that are being unfulfilled, unmet, desires that are somehow unhealthy, somehow dirty and wrong in some sort of way. These are the kind of distorted views that crop up from time to time throughout church history. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is the kind of thing that was going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul's taking opportunity to deal with some of these distorted views of sexuality within marriage in this chapter. The occasion you'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 7 is a letter. Paul says there in verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so Paul's responding to a letter that he had received from them. And in the letter they had asked him a question. As a matter of fact, they had asked him a number of questions. And as we go throughout the rest of this letter... We're going to see him responding to several issues that have been presented to him in a letter. And we'll notice these issues. We'll notice their questions because they'll be marked 
by the phrase, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. You see it here in verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, you go over to chapter 7, verse 25, you see it again, now concerning the betrothed, you go to chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, and then again over in chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, even over in chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, and then there in chapter 16, verse 12, apparently another one now concerning our brother Apollos. All of these were just a series, a successive series of questions that have been put to Paul in a letter. And here in verse 1, we find him responding specifically to a question about sexuality. And perhaps there are a whole list of questions that were attached to this, but Paul really uh, addresses the subject in verse 1 of chapter 7 by quoting directly from their letter a small portion of it. They had asked him about a principle, about a motto that was being used in their church. Their slogan, he says it here, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, not to touch a woman, as it says in the older translations. Those are not Paul's words. Those are their words, the words of their letter. Now, obviously, Paul doesn't bring this topic up out of a vacuum. He had just spent really all of chapter 5 and chapter 6 against the backdrop of sexual immorality. Remember, chapter 5, verse 1 was a an issue of a man having his father's wife, uh, immorality with a stepmom, apparently. And then in chapter 6, verses 9 and 11, a whole litany of sexual sins that Paul has to address that were apparently uh, becoming pro- problematic with the church. And then really the whole second half of chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, was an extensive section dealing with this topic of sexual Immorality, And so Paul probably felt like this was the appropriate time now to bring up their question, to take on their seemingly extreme stand against sexual immorality. At least their slogan implied it. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That was their idea. That was their idea. And this was apparently causing huge problems within the church. Massive problems. And so Paul takes opportunity here to address for them the dangers and demands of the marriage bed. And altogether appropriate for us in a society where whether we like to talk about it or not, this is a massive issue for us. There's discontentment all around. There's frustration all around. Divorce is rampant. Fornication and adultery are rampant sexual immorality all around us. There's all kinds of animosity within marriages and animosity that tears up marriages. And so while it is sometimes an uncomfortable issue to deal with, it is certainly dealt with head on in scripture. And it certainly is something that the church needs to address today in the lives of so many people. Paul wants to respond to their letter and their questions by talking about things within the marriage that need to be avoided, things that are distorted. He needs to talk to them about things that ought to be pursued also and things that will enrich and fulfill their marriage. And so he's going to address for them all of these dangers and all of these demands 
that God's word gives to us regarding the, the marriage bed. You'll note in verse 1, he first of all deals with the danger of spiritual distortion. The danger of spiritual distortion. This really comes out of the first statement. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's important, as I said, for us to realize those are not Paul's words. He's quoting them. This was their motto. Perhaps something they had lifted inadvertently or or mistakenly from one of Paul's letters. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 9? They had misunderstood some prohibition against uh, associating with immoral people and had taken it and skewed it all the wrong direction. Perhaps somewhere along the way they read something by him or by someone else and they concluded that because of uh, some strong rebuke against sexual immorality, they concluded, therefore, that all sex is bad. That's basically what their motto meant. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so they, they sort of made this, sort of paraphrased it, all sex is bad. Or on the flip side, we might state it this way, that it's more spiritual not to have sexual desire. That's what they thought. This is what was going through their thinking. Now, a lot of people, they wonder what in the world is going on here. I mean, because we just finished a chapter. We just finished the second half of chapter six in which Paul had written to them this extensive section on sexual immorality. And, it's, and, and if you were to just read verses 12 through 20 of chapter 6, I mean, this sounds like a people who were tormented with sexual desire and bondage to sexual sin and involved with all kinds of immorality. And then you get to chapter 7, and, and it sounds like a bunch of choir boys. And here they have this motto, it's not even good to touch a woman, Right? And they think, what in the world is going on here? I mean, is he writing to two different people, as two different churches? Is somehow some other letter got dropped in here somewhere along the way? I mean, what in the world could possibly explain this? Well, let me just tell you, the two positions are not mutually exclusive. Not by any means. Anyone who studied the issue of celibacy certainly understands this. I mean, throughout the history of the Catholic Church, there has been repeatedly people coming forward, coming out of the priesthood, out of the nunnery, talking about the issues that this creates. Charles Chinacoy wrote a book in the 19th century, wrote 50 years, called 50 Years in the Roman Catholic Church. He was a a distinguished priest in the Canadian church. In fact, he was... He was designated, he was bestowed a, an official title by the Catholic Church, by, by, uh, uh, by Rome, the Apostle of Temperance, because of his leadership in the temperance movement of those days, for all of his efforts in leading the churches there. Chinakoy was converted, and he wrote this book called 50 Years in the Catholic Church, in which he documents his dreadful awakening to the horrors of immorality behind the walls of monasteries and convents. He He goes through the torturous process in his own heart and life, uh, in his his education, in the moment at which he and all of his classmates had to approach the issue of their vow of celibacy, sort of bucking and kicking all the way, demanding more answers from their leaders who would just rebuke them and tell them to be quiet, to take their vow, and they will grow eventually in this grace. 
Not long after that, Chinakoy finds himself traveling, being sent up to a hotel in Montreal. When he receives word that there had just been recently a scandal in the monastery where he was to be sent. Another priest had fallen into sexual immorality with a cook. And he was confiding his grave disappointment in one of the nuns when she began to unfold for him the horrors of her own life and everything she had seen. Priests and nuns regularly pursuing sexual immorality. Priests who would take on a, on a sense of pretense of a leave of absence for sickness so that they could go to the convent and seduce young nun, nuns who were serving them. Hans Hildebrand writes to the Catholic Church that after their official establishment of celibacy as a principle for Catholic priests in the 6th century A.D., he says, quote, This mandate for celibacy generated all kinds of immorality. The abodes of priests were often dens of corruption. It was common to see priests frequenting taverns, gambling, having orgies with quarrels and blasphemy. Many priests kept mistresses. Convents became houses of ill fame. In many places, the people were delighted at seeing a priest with a mistress because the married women would be safe from him. End quote. You really don't need that historical review. All you need to do is open up your newspaper, turn on the TV. And you see the tormented souls still today seeking to pursue some outrageous vow of celibacy. While all the time in their heart, there is an inflamed passion that can't be controlled. The two positions are not mutually exclusive. Paul can write to one group and talk to them about sexual immorality because it's the very same group who are putting on some sort of pretense of spirituality, who are going around saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to ascend above sexual desire. I'm going to rise above this. I'm above these base desires. Those are, those are the things of the unspiritual people. Those are the things of the people who haven't advanced. Those are the people who might still be in some sort of bondage. Paul could write all of this to this group of people because they were in this paradox. And here they were, they had this motto that they were trying to apply to all kinds of situations. For some people, they were trying to apply it to themselves in their singleness. They were concluding that sex was bad, that it's more spiritual not to have sex. And so they were teaching that a person should remain single and not marry. That is the better pathway. And then there were other people who were trying to apply this within marriage and particularly married to unbelievers. And they were concluding that they should therefore divorce their unbelieving spouses and leave them. And Paul's going to have to deal with that later on in the chapter. And then there's a third group who were teaching that sex is bad, that it's more spiritual not to have sex, and that within, therefore, the standard marriage, the right and proper way is to actually remain celibate. That is to abstain from sexual activity even within the bounds of marriage. This was their idea, their, their false, distorted idea of marriage. And so you'll see further down, Paul has to correct their thinking. For example, down in verse 28, if you do not marry, you, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. 
Or down in verse 36, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, he, and it has to be, let him do it as he wishes, let him marry. It is no sin, he says. So he's having to come along and say, look, it's not sinful. It's not sinful to marry. It's not sinful within marriage. In order, uh, in order to clarify for their thinking, he's having to tell them, this is altogether natural and good and godly. So it's important for us to understand as we read verse 1 that none of this comes from the Apostle Paul. Paul never taught them that sex is bad. He never taught them that it's more spiritual not to have sex or not to have sexual desires. In fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. Not only does it teach that sex isn't bad, it teaches that it's a gift from God. And that he ordained it. Proverbs 5.18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. That's a command. It's an affirmation of the right and the proper joys of the marriage bed. Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor by all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. That That aspect of marriage is absolutely honorable and noble and right and good and blessed by God what it's saying as a matter of fact god created marriage you remember and he says it's not good for man to be alone and so he created male and female and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply so the bible from the very beginning and god from the very beginning blessed marriage and he blessed the marriage bed it was by his design and it's this unique institution of marriage which he established by which a man and a woman enter into this level of intimacy that involves everything down to the marriage bed. They enter into this in such a unique way that they're described as one flesh with one another, and God's Word ordained this. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warns that in latter days, some people will come and they will actually, he says, forbid marriage. There will actually be people, he says, who come forbidding marriage. And in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 4, Paul equates that with doctrines of demons. So he says people who come along and teach this, that somehow marriage is bad and that people ought to abstain from marriage, that's a satanic doctrine. And yet there's always been people who want to attack this blessed institution who want to distort it with some strange views of spirituality, of asceticism, of of hyper-devotion. And it's no surprise because marriage is such at the heart of society and such at the heart of the joys and the bliss of humankind. I mean, really, anyone born in this world was born through the union of a man and a woman. Hopefully were born into a home with a strong and stable marriage, and they themselves were recipients then of the blessing of this union. Whether they ever married themselves, just by virtue of the fact of being born into a married home. It's a blessing to society, and it's a blessing to the people who themselves go on and participate in marriage. And yet there's always been satanic attacks to try to distort what was intended to be a blessing, intended to be good, intended to be honorable, intended to be enjoyed. I remember one time 
years ago uh, talking to a guy and he was trying to convince me that the marriage bed is simply for the act of procreation. That that's all it's for, and if it's for anything else, it's really a distortion. And, and so he was trying to, trying to convince me, therefore, that, that birth control is bad, and there certainly are some forms of birth control that are abortive. We know that. But, but he was trying to say any kind of effort to in any way curb the number of children you have because the marriage bed is simply for the purpose of procreation. And so we're standing here as kids are just running everywhere, all these kids everywhere. And I'm thinking, really? <laughs> but this guy really thought he was more spiritual because he had somehow elevated the sexual act in marriage above what he considered to be some base desire for pleasure. And he sort of elevated it to something that he thought was more noble the production of children. The sad thing is that his marriage fell apart. And partly because he was seeking sexual gratification outside of his own marriage. People have always taught things like that. And it just contradicts what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that sex outside of marriage is wrong, always wrong, and it's bad. But the Bible also teaches that celibacy within marriage is wrong, and it's bad. That's what the Bible teaches. Sex itself is not inherently shameful. It was designed by God. The marriage bed was designed by God. He, he not only created it, He blessed it. For all kinds of great reasons. And the Bible tells us that we are to celebrate that. Listen, the Bible doesn't teach it's more spiritual not to have sex. This is the way God made you. This is the way God designed you. This is the way God designed the world. And nowhere in Scripture should you ever get the idea that somehow it's more spiritual not to have that desire. It doesn't teach that sex is simply for procreation. It doesn't teach that it's more spiritual to engage in the marriage bed only for that purpose. Those are distortions of biblical teaching. It's contrary to the idea of what the Bible really teaches. And the Bible really teaches that it isn't less spiritual. It's actually spiritual to engage in the marriage bed the way God designed it. For the purposes God designed it for. All that leads to Paul's second warning in verse 2, which is the dangers of sexual temptation. He immediately responds to their distortion with what is most obvious in verse 2. Because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. To have your wife, to have your husband, it's the same language Paul used back in chapter 5, verse 1, when he talked about a man having his, his uh, father's wife. He's talking about a sexual euphemism. And so he says, one of the dangers of your distortions, one of the dangers of you not embracing everything that the Scripture says about, about this area of your life, one of the dangers of not having your spouse in this way is that it will lead to sexual temptation. It will go there. So Paul says the answer is that you're to have your spouse. He doesn't get any particulars. He doesn't 
really talk about how regular it ought to be, but the context makes it obvious. It ought to be regular. It ought to be continuous. Otherwise, Paul says, you're going to subject yourself to increasing temptation for immorality. Listen, one of the greatest guards you will ever have on your life against sexual immorality is the contentment that you have in your relationship with your spouse. One of the greatest guards you'll ever have is the satisfaction that you have, the companionship that you have, the spiritual fellowship that you have, and the contentment that you have even in your own marriage bed. This is God's design. That this is the bedrock of faithfulness, the bedrock of purity in your life. That you're engaging in properly in that area of your life so that you are not subjecting yourself unduly to temptation. That's what Paul's getting at here. Wayne Mack, in one of his books, lays out a progression of sexual immorality that he says he's had to, unfortunately, witness over and over and over again throughout all of his days, this, this indelible pathway of bondage to fornication and uh, adultery and immorality, this definite progression, he says, it always begins with emotional readiness. It's always the first step down the road. He says there's emotional readiness... And then secondly, there's a growing awareness of a particular person. Thirdly, there's time spent thinking about the attractiveness of the other person. Fourthly, a seemingly innocent meaning. Number five, time spent comparing the other person with your present mate. Number six, time spent thinking about the negative, unpleasant aspect of your present situation, how unhappy and how unfulfilled you are. Number seven, an intentional meeting, engineering circumstances so as to appear unintentional. Number eight, public lingering. Number nine, private lingering. Number 10, time spent dwelling on how good the other person makes you feel. Number 11, more frequent meetings for apparently legitimate purposes. Number 12, pleasurable isolation. Number 13, affectionate embracing. Number 14, denial, rationalization, justification. Number 15, passionate embracing. And then number 16, sexual immorality. And Paul's telling them, That if you're not actively pursuing one another in this area. You've already taken the first step. Down that road. You may not want to think about it. But you've already taken that first step. You're already headed down the wrong path. So Paul says look you need to. You need to understand. There are dangers. There are dangers. If you have a distorted view, if you have a strange view, if you have an off view, there are dangers to not viewing the marriage bed rightly as God designed it. That sort of takes us from the negative side to the positive side, which is the demand. What does God want in this area of your life? Paul says in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul is saying that within marriage, you need to be aware and consider the needs and desires of your wife or your husband that are right, that are appropriate, and that are good. 
And you need to provide for them, he says, what is right. Now, you need to be careful here because you could read what Paul's saying and quickly conclude that he's laying the groundwork for you to go out and now make all sorts of demands upon your spouse because you, they don't have a right over their own body. I have, I have, I have desires, I have uh, uh, needs, and you don't have authority, I have authority, and so I'm going to make some demands. Well, if you read it that way, you've really missed Paul's point. Paul isn't trying to establish some groundwork by which you can approach the marriage bed with all kinds of selfishness and all kinds of self-centeredness. That is, that is not what he's trying to do. As a matter of fact, any unbeliever can do that. That, that is, in fact, the problem in so many marriages and, and so many people with this area of their life. It is self-satisfaction, it is self-centeredness, it is self-pursuit. That is, in so many ways, the problem. No, what Paul is really aiming at is others' focus, the surrender of your personal interests, the surrender of your own personal man's demands in order to serve one another. The emphasis, in other words, is on your own body, not the body of your spouse. You do not have authority, he says, over your own body. And so Paul's saying when you enter into marriage... You make yourself an instrument of service to your spouse. But this is really the paradox of love. Paradox of service that you find in scripture. That is to say there is a way that you can demand love. You can demand someone to serve your needs. There's a way to do that that absolutely kills love. And absolutely kills any desire to serve you. But then there's a way to give love and give service to others that absolutely generates respect and honor and esteem and unity and love towards one another. There's a way to do that. And you see it throughout Scripture, particularly in reference to marriage. Paul, most notably in Ephesians chapter 5, calls on husbands to love their wives, he says, by giving up themselves, by laying down their lives. And so he's calling for them to lay down your life for your wife, to sacrifice yourself in all these areas of life. And then he gives this very incredibly insightful comment in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. And that's really a spiritual principle of love and service that, 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 that teaches us one of the best ways to generate the kind of affection and to generate the kind of esteem and to generate the kind of honor that every one of us really long for in our heart. One of the best ways to do that is to put on the right kind of love. And the scripture teaches us exactly what that is. Greater love has no man than this, that he give up his life for his friend. You are pursuing the highest level of love when you are pursuing an absolute sacrifice of yourself on behalf of someone that you claim to love. No greater expression, listen to this, no greater experience of love. God has built this principle and woven it into every area of life and the marriage bed is no different. When you get people together who are both spirit-filled, who both understand the implications of 
what the cross really is all about, the implications of the love of Christ, when you have two people who understand both of that and, and come to that filled with the Spirit in order to exhibit that kind of love, what you have is, is a little bit of heaven on earth. What you have is bliss. What you have is what Peter calls in First Peter chapter 3, the grace of life. That's what he calls marriage. That's what he calls marriage. And you need to understand that you're only going to accomplish that. You're only going to accomplish that as you walk in the Spirit. You see, this isn't something that's natural to people. This isn't something that you don't see people just going around constantly laying their life down for someone. It's not natural to our human hearts to be self-sacrificial. What's natural to us is self-centeredness. What's natural to us is always do something uh, that's calculated to bring us the best uh, possible return, not to just simply offer ourselves freely and willingly as a surrender and a sacrifice to the service of others. And so if you have people who understand the principle that Paul's saying here, what you have are spirit-filled people. And so what you wind up with is what? A spirit-filled marriage bed. A spirit-filled marriage bed. See, this isn't something that's to be avoided. This isn't something God has set his heart against. This is something God wants us to express to one another in the deepest of spiritual terms. This is one, something that God wants to us approach like we approach every single thing in our life. He wants to approach us and wants us to approach it through the lens of the cross, through the transformative power of his spirit, through the definition of his love for us. So it's a spirit filled activity. And this is what Paul's calling for here. You'll never do it. Unless you're spirit filled. You'll never accomplish this. You'll never realize this. What does that mean? Well, it means that you and your wife, you and your husband, if you ever have any hope of experiencing what the Lord wants for you to experience in your marriage, it means that both of you need to be pursuing the Lord. Both of you need to be spending time in His Word. Both of you need to be spending time in prayer. If you want to experience what God wants you to experience in this area of your life, you will never really find it. You'll never really experience it unless you're experiencing the kind of spirit-filled walk that God wants you to have in every area of your life. It means something else as well. It obviously assumes that somewhere along the way, if you're going to serve the needs of your spouse, you know what they are. You see, this is what we do. We sometimes sort of presume that whatever our desires are, whatever our needs are, are the needs of everybody else. And we sort of operate on that assumption and we move forward in life, but that is nothing but a thinly veiled selfishness. In other words, this assumes that there is communication. It assumes that there's some sort of openness in your marriage to be able to talk about these issues so that you can hear from and, and dialogue together with the person that you claim to love so that you can find out what it is that you can do in order to help, help them have the most fulfilled marriage that they can have. It assumes some sort of dialogue. All that sort of takes us to the fourth principle in the demand of the marriage bed, which is the demand for godly communication. The demand for godly communication. 
Paul says in verse 5, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is saying that in in the normal course of marriage, you are not to deprive one another. This is a word, deprived is a word actually for stealing. It's a word for taking what belongs rightfully to somebody else. You are not to take what rightly, rightfully belongs in God's ordained world and God's ordained pattern, what rightfully belongs to someone else. Whatever kind of pretense you may have, whatever sense of super spirituality you may have, whatever uh, means of maybe intimidation or manipulation that you have, you need to understand that when you do that, Paul says in verse 5, you're making yourself a tool of Satan. You're making yourself a tool of Satan. Paul, however, offers in this verse an exception. You do not deprive one another. You do not neglect this area of your marriage except under three conditions. First of all, mutual agreement. There is mutual consent to abstinence. Both partners agree. Which again, obviously assumes what? Communication. It assumes communication. It assumes that there is some openness in your relationship to speak about these things and that you understand one another and that you both come to a common agreement on this limited exception. Which sort of is the second principle here. This, this abstinence must be for a limited period of time. So in other words, there's a clear understanding that this is out of the ordinary. This is a clear understanding that this is temporary. There are boundaries, there are limitations that are mutually agreed upon. And there's supposed to be, at some point, a return to normalcy. And then thirdly, it must be spiritually motivated. It must be spiritually motivated. He doesn't mention anything about convenience. He doesn't mention anything about any selfish pursuits. He doesn't mention certainly anything about manipulation, about, about revenge. He doesn't mention any of those things. But, but if you mutually agree on it for a limited period of time and it's for a spiritually motivated purpose, he says it must be so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. In fact, the King James translates that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, which doesn't reflect the best manuscript evidence that we have from all of our our, uh, ancient manuscripts on the Bible, but it certainly reflects the mood. This is most likely what Paul had in mind here. It's not the idea that that you're to be unprayerful all the time and then suddenly take a season of prayer just for the time, a season of time just for prayer. Or somehow that prayer is contrary to sexuality or, or that you cannot be equally devoted to prayer and also devoted to this area in your marriage bed. Paul's not saying any of that. He's certainly not saying that it's more spiritual to abstain from sex. That would be contrary not only to everything he said so far, but contrary to what the Bible teaches. He's not saying any of that. But what he's doing is most likely acknowledging that there are times... In our lives and in our marriage of intense burden, even intense conviction. 
and that it would be appropriate in those times to devote yourself to a season of prayer. You say, well, where would he get that idea? That kind of exception? Well, he got it straight out of Scripture. This is what you see in Scripture. For example, Exodus 19. God had called Israel together at the foot of Mount Sinai. He was going to give them a covenant, a code. He was going to give them a law. And the law, as we subsequently find out, was for the purpose of demonstrating to them their sinfulness, their need for grace, about how far they had fallen from God so that they could eventually cry out for a Savior. That's what we read in Deuteronomy uh, 28 through 32. That's what we read when we come into the New Testament. God gave the law in order to highlight to them His holiness, their sinfulness. And so, whenever this happens, God says He's going to manifest Himself to Moses in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak. And he tells Moses in Exodus 19 verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And so they are to have an intense three-day span of mourning. They are to consecrate themselves and dedicate themselves to reflecting on their own sin. In fact, verse 14, Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments and he said to them, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. In other words, he was preparing them that during this time of intense mourning and grief and particularly repentance, it would be altogether appropriate for them to, to abstain from the marriage bed. A hundred years later, in response to Judah's extreme wickedness, a prophet would record the words of the Lord. Joel chapter 2, verse 12, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Who knows whether he will turn and relent. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. So he's saying, look, there needs to be such an intense time of mourning and repentance in the nation, uh, in the nation that even the bride and the bridegroom would leave their nuptial chambers. To participate in this morning. Again, the Bible teaches that when Christ comes, Jeremiah chapter 12, he will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and, and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on him whom they pierce, they will mourn for him. And the land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. In other words, marriage relationships will be, will be such that even the husbands and wives, in isolation from one another, take a time for particular mourning. And so Paul probably knew this. He probably recognized this. And so he probably understood that in all the situations of life, he could think of only one possible exception when you would ever deny one another this aspect of your marriage. And that would be times when you're under personal conviction. Or maybe we even might say sometime whenever you're having some strong burden 
some grief in your heart on behalf of someone else, or maybe some conviction over your own sin, possibly even a rebuke from your own spouse. And it's altogether appropriate in those times that commensurate with what was going on in your heart, the grief, the heartache, the pain, it's altogether appropriate that you would take a limited period of time, mutually agreed upon, to spend time in devotion to the Lord. But you see, this is a concession, Paul says in verse 6. It's a concession, not a command that I say. This, this is not the normal thing. It's not the way it's supposed to be. This, this, this is what God has designed for marriage. That you, you engage regularly, consistently in this area of life, but there will come periods of time when for spiritual reasons you have such a heavy heart. It's altogether appropriate to go to your spouse and say, you know, this is going on. This is going on in my heart and in my life. It has nothing to do with you. I'm not distancing myself with you because I'm upset with you or because somehow I'm no longer committed to you or somehow that, uh, you know, it's not an issue of attraction. This is what's going on in my heart. There's grief. There's conviction. There's burden. But you see, this is the way that you, you're to deal with these issues. You're to communicate. You're to communicate. You're to be open. Share one another's burdens. You're to be open in this area of your life to be able to talk about these so that there isn't the miscues that inevitably go along with so many discontent marriages where people are constantly feeling things and burdens and guilt and shame in their heart and they don't know how to talk to one another about that and they just don't talk about it and yet they withdraw from one another and they don't know how to deal with the grief in their heart and then there's just compiling more and more animosity between one another and shame between one another and they don't know how to talk about it. Paul says you need to communicate. There will be times when it's appropriate. But most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's not. We need to hear this message, don't we? We live in a country that's being ripped apart. It is, as I said last week, it is a sex-saturated culture. But unfortunately, not according to God's design. There is so much frustration there's so much tension, there's so much discontent, there's so much animosity, there's so much dysfunctionality. God forbid that it ever be found in the home of believers who, having learned the message of Christ and having His Spirit to fill them every day, ought to be expressing in every way with one another, the love of Christ. They ought to be talking, they ought to be communicating, they ought to be sacrificing, they ought to be serving. They ought to do it not as some, some concession, not as some lower level of spirituality, but they ought to be doing it as spirit-filled people. To God's glory, 
whenever you and your home and your marriage exude what God intended every marriage to be. Proclamation of the kind of love that Christ has for his church, his bride. That's what your homes can be. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Lord, in so many ways, this is a difficult subject for us to address, but we know it's necessary because we see around us people and homes and families being ripped apart. We see even in the church animosity and discord, broken homes and broken marriages and broken hearts. We sense by our own selfish endeavors, the strain and the stress in our own marriages, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be spirit-filled people with spirit-filled marriages. Help us, Lord, to understand the demands that your word places on the marriage bed and help us to be wary of the dangers that are always lurking, trying to redefine and distort which you have given to us always as a blessing and a gift. Hear our prayers, Lord. May you work in us to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.